Well, good morning to you. Joining us online, to those of you, so many in the room this morning, love looking out, seeing your warm faces this morning. My name is Aaron. I'm pastor here at Lake Forest Church. Uh, And let me be, hopefully, not the first, hopefully maybe the second, third, or fourth to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. And wasn't that story fantastic? Uh, Robert, Sonia, so grateful for you guys and your family being a part of our family. And Sonia said it so well, God puts us in families, doesn't he? He puts us in families. And it's a reminder that the church is to be more than just a social club, more than just a building, more than just a place that we go. The church is a spiritual family. And for those of you who'd be looking for a place where you can belong, where you can love others and be loved as you are, I hope you would consider being a part of this spiritual family. Uh, We've got a, a class coming up called Welcome 101, and it's the perfect opportunity for those of you who'd be interested in saying, look, I want to lock arms with this community. I want to call this place home. I want to belong and serve and do life together with this group. There's more information for you online if you'd like to check that out. We'd love to have you join us and be a part of this spiritual family. Well, I did mention Valentine's Day, and uh, you know, I was doing a little bit of research, by the way. Uh, some of the funny traditions that we do around the world and throughout history on Valentine's Day. You might know some of these. Did you know in the Middle Ages, it was common for young men and women who were eligible to come together in the little town courtyard, and they would put their names in a bucket, and uh, each would draw out a name, and then they would pin that name on their sleeve, and they would wear that around all week long. Uh, I'm not sure what happened if you ran into somebody who had your name on their sleeve, but you know, uh, early tender, you know, that kind of thing. This is actually where the phrase, wearing your heart on your sleeve came from. Did you know that? Or how about this one? In mid- medieval times, girls uh, often would eat unusual foods on Valentine's Day to help make them dream of their future husband. Uh, kind, of, kind of interesting. Uh, and just be thankful that you don't live in Wales today because Instead of flowers and chocolates, if you were in Wales, you know what you get for Valentine's Day? A wooden spoon. It must be true. I read it on the internet. Because nothing says, I love you dearly as much as a wooden spoon does. Well, today we are in a series called The Whole Story. Uh, We're walking through the Bible from beginning to end, and we've come now, beginning with last week, to a part in the Old Testament that we call the family of God which is why we wanted to share with you a God story of a family from our community here. Last week, if you were with us, we began the journey with Abraham, where God moves from his cosmic dealings with the whole of creation, and he zeroes in on just one family. And he picks that one family, not because they were so pickable, but because he wanted to start small in his effort to rebuild, restore, and renew his creation. Now, the story we come to today is perhaps one of the most famous and most unusual parts of the story of the Bible. It's a story of betrayal, sex, sibling rivalry, scandal, and revenge. So it's basically like all the shows you watch on Netflix. But this is actually straight out of the Bible. And our passage could not be more fitting for Valentine's Day today. It's about a guy named Jacob and his quest to be loved. For all the country music fans or closet country music fans, I've titled today's message, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. (laughs) Now, 
Just to give you a little bit of context on where we are at in the whole story, we are right in the middle of the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the guy we talked about last week, Abraham and Sarah. And I got a little family table for you. And unlike Dr. Laniac's very academic and professional slides, here's mine. This is the best I could do for today. But this will give you an idea, right? Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, the promised child. Isaac and Rebekah would give birth to Jacob. His name will later be changed to Israel. And Jacob will become the father of 12 sons, where we get the 12 tribes, right? Got everybody up to speed so far on the story? So that's a little bit of context. Now, just by way of me mentioning the name Jacob in context with Abraham and Isaac, you might be tempted to think, oh, this is one of those hero stories of the Bible, right? This is one of those stories where the people do everything right and we're supposed to imitate them. And you wouldn't be at fault for thinking that way. Most ancient cultures told hero stories as a way of teaching virtue. The problem with the Bible is the Bible is way too honest to do that to us. <laughs> and the story today is really a story about a broken struggling man named Jacob. Instead, what we find in the Bible is that the Bible is filled with people who are deeply flawed, deeply imperfect, just like your spouse or your kids. I was just seeing if y'all were awake this morning. Are we so awake? Okay, all right. And you, by the way, right? And me. Jacob's story is fascinating, and it will cover 11 chapters of Genesis but uh, it begins in an interesting way. His name actually means grasper. That's what the word Jacob means. It means to grasp. And when his story begins, he is in the womb with his brother Esau. They are twin brothers, though they will be very different. And Esau is born first, probably by a few minutes. And as the Bible tells it, when Esau comes out, Jacob is grasping at his ankle as if trying to yank him back in so that Jacob can be the first out of the womb and be the firstborn son which will be hugely important as we get into the story today. But for the rest of Jacob's life, he is grasping. He's grasping at something that he does not have, something that he thinks will finally satisfy him. It is his quest for love. Now, there's one story in Jacob's life that I want to zero in on. As I said, his story spans 11 chapters of Genesis. I encourage you to read it. If you're reading along with us in our daily reading plan, uh, you're going to cover much of this. You can get one of those on our website. But Jacob's story hint, turns on a hinge in chapter 29. And the surprising story, hero excuse me, in chapter 29 will emerge, but I'll give you a hint. It is not Jacob. Now, before I read this story to you, I need to tell you one other thing that's background knowledge on him. Just let me set the stage. As I mentioned, Jacob is the younger of two brothers, and his older brother Esau was dad's favorite. Esau was the good-looking one. Esau was the strong one. Esau was the athletic one, the manly one. He's even hairier than his brother Jacob, meaning he could grow the really cool beard. Now, modern psychologists often refer to this kind of syndrome with children as the golden child syndrome. One child gets labeled as the golden child, the perfect one, while the other child, the one who struggles or has issues, gets labeled as the black sheep. And once labeled, psychologists tell us, these children often, even subconsciously, live into these new titles that their parents have so lovingly given them. You see, the truth is, the truth is, that when parents play favorites, everyone loses. 
The golden child grows up fearing failure because failure means the loss of parental love. And the black sheep grows up and eventually gives up because he or she can never win. Now, parents often blame their children for this situation, but it is simply the fruit of the parent's choice to play favorites. And that is exactly what we see play out over and over again here in Genesis. There's a pattern, a type that we see in these stories. It's, a, it's the pattern of sin and sibling rivalry. We see it first in Cain and Abel. We see it in Noah's sons. We see it in, uh, in Isaac and Esau. And now here, uh, sorry, in Isaac and Ishmael. And now right here with Jacob and Esau. The sin virus is running rampant. And it leaves people broken and wounded in its path. Well, okay, that's a little bit of background. One day, Isaac, uh, their father, who was very old, decided it was time to give his blessing to one of his sons. This is a big deal. We mentioned this because it meant that the son who carried the blessing would carry on the promise of God. The only problem is Isaac was mostly blind. <laughs> he, he had lost all of his sight so Jacob decides he's going to dress up like his older brother Esau and deceive, trick his father into giving him the blessing. Well, when Esau finds out what has happened, he is livid and he vows to kill his brother Jacob. And so Jacob has to flee for his life to his uncle's house. And you thought your family was messed up, right? Well, the result of that decision, that decision to run away that Jacob makes, is that he loses everything. He loses his family. He loses his inheritance. And what little love he had from his father, he loses that too. He's utterly despondent, and he travels actually eastward. And if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you know that in Genesis, whenever you're going east, you're going away from God, remember? To move, turn towards God is to move west. He's moving east. We know he's turning away from God here. And he actually travels to the other side of the Fertile Crescent where his uncle Laban lives, or Lavan, if you want to say it in Hebrew. His uncle gives him a job tending sheep, and it's here that Jacob finally sees the answer to all of his problems. It's Laban's daughter, Rachel. Now our love story can finally begin, right? It's Valentine's Day after all. All right, here we go. Genesis 29, verses 16 through 20. Let me read this to you. Listen to the account here of Jacob searching for one true love. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Who's the older one? Who's the younger one? Okay, hold on to this. We got two siblings again. We know that's trouble. Here we go. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than to someone else. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Oh. I can already see the preview on the Hallmark Channel, right? Can you see this? Trevor Lawrence is Jacob. You know, he's got that long blonde hair, right? Yeah. Emma Watson is Rachel. I don't know. Maybe Julia Roberts is the kind of washed out older sister. I'm sorry. Was that too? That was a little cold, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But see, if you read this story, you're thinking, oh, how romantic, right? 
Like we can't help, we see the word love and we have to ignore all the other facts. We think suddenly we're watching the Hallmark Channel. But notice this, he worked for her seven years and you're thinking, yeah, Aaron, see love, love, that's love. I can't get my spouse to help for seven minutes in the kitchen. But how are we supposed to read this story? Well, I think there are some other clues that I wanna draw our attention to. You see, we're so immersed in this romantic ideal that we see the word love and we instantly think beauty and the beast. But I don't think that's how this story is supposed to be read. The great Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says that in the ancient world, it was customary to pay a price for a bride. I know we, we don't think that way. This was normal culture in that day. But the price that Jacob offers to pay is four times what would have been expected in his day. Now, some of you are thinking, no, Aaron, it's because of love. So you're just reinforcing my point. But look at this. Look at verse 21 and how Jacob speaks to his future father-in-law. He says this after he's worked seven years. He says, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. Now, if my son-in-law ever says anything even remotely close to that to me, <laughs> dude is not coming back, right? You get the point, right? In essence, he's saying, look, I can't wait to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me now. That's not romance. That's not love. That's obsession. That's the desire to possess something. And this is exactly the picture we get of Jacob. The narrator is showing us a man who is overwhelmed, a man who is desperate, a man who is broken by his longings, so overwhelmed that he is willing to forfeit everything else to possess it. But the question is why? Why is Jacob in this state? And I think the answer is found just a few verses earlier. Look at how Jacob responds the first time he meets Rachel. This was just from a few verses early. When Jacob saw Rachel's daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. We get the picture, they're at a well. Jacob shows up, he meets Rachel, he sees her. He goes, he opens the well up, waters there all the flock, and then it says this, then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Why is he weeping? That's not the picture of romantic love. That's not the picture of joy and happiness and contentment. That's the picture of a man who is desperate for something to fill a void that nothing else has been able to fill. You see, what I want to suggest to you today is that this story of Jacob in Genesis 29 is really the story of a man whose life is empty. He had lost his father's love. His brother hated him. He had no relationship with his mom. Nothing is going right. And then one day at a local watering hole, he meets the most beautiful woman. He hasn't known her for more than but a minute. And he thinks, ah, if I can have her, something would finally be right in my life. Something in my poor, miserable life might finally work out. If I had her, it would complete me. It would fix everything. Now you see, the Bible is very honest about romantic love and marriage. It honors them, it lifts them up, but it recognizes this, that as great as a romantic partner can be, and it can be great, it cannot fill the deepest need in our soul. And that's what happens next 
as the story continues on the wedding night, and it's quite ironic. Let me tell you what, what goes on here. The wedding night comes, it's dark, everyone has had a lot of wine, and Laban decides to pull the old switcheroo on Jacob. Look with me at verse 23. But when evening came, he, that's Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. When morning came, there was Leah. And there's a whole other sermon packed in those three words right there, right? There, morning comes, there was Leah. You see what Genesis is doing? We are confronted right here with another sibling rivalry. Only this time it's not Jacob and Esau. This time it's Leah and her sister, Rachel. This time the older sister, Leah, is the black sheep. And the beautiful Rachel is the golden child. Do you see that? Leah longs, just as Jacob does, for someone to see her, someone to love her. But it will not be Jacob. Look at his response in, verse, in the next verse. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? <laughs> I served you for Rachel, and I got Leah. There was Leah, right? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replies, it is not our custom here to give the younger before the firstborn. Do you see what's happening here? It's subtle. I don't want you to miss this. Jacob will go on to serve his uncle for another seven years, and you might ask the question, why? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he protest? Why doesn't he throw a fit and say, you can't do that? I was supposed to marry Rachel. Well, the answer as to why he doesn't do that is found in Laban's response. It is not our custom here to give the younger before the older. When was the last time that the younger got preference before the older? Well, it was Jacob when he deceived his father out of his blessing. Do you see what's happening? Just as Jacob's father Isaac reached out in the dark thinking he was reaching for Esau, but he was giving his blessing to Jacob, so also Jacob is reaching out in the dark thinking he's reaching for Rachel. Only, nope, there was Leah. Jacob, the deceiver, has been deceived. And I think it's here that Jacob finally reaches rock bottom. I think it's here that he finally reaches the lowest point in his brokenness. And the strife that has defined his childhood, his struggle for love in all the wrong places, the struggle with his brother, now will become the struggle of his marriage as he marries not one but two sisters who will have the same struggle that he has had his whole life. You see, in spite of all his grasping, Jacob has not been able to find the love he longs for. The end. Happy Valentine's Day. Should we pray and go home? No, no, don't worry. There's more to this story. In fact, God is not done with Jacob. You fast forward a few chapters. God is going to come to Jacob in the most miraculous of ways. But that's a story for another time because right here in chapter 29, our story takes a surprising and sudden turn. In the very next verse, our attention is not drawn to Jacob. It is not drawn to Rachel, but we are drawn now to Leah. 
the older sister. Remember, Leah had always been the girl nobody wanted, the girl nobody saw. Her father wasn't particularly fond of her, and compared to her sister, she felt almost invisible. The the Bible describes her in this strange Hebrew phrase phrase as having weak eyes. Uh, Some scholars think that maybe she had a vision impediment. Most think that what it meant was that she was weak on the eyes. She wasn't much to look at. She was rather plain. No one had ever noticed her. No one had ever truly seen her. So you can imagine her surprise that night when her father comes to her. He's cooked up this scheme to trick Jacob into marrying her. And though she doesn't know that for sure, or maybe she doesn't know it, or maybe she does know it, but she can't bring herself to believe it's actually true. After all, her father tells her that tonight she will be wed to Jacob. And she thinks, ah, maybe this is finally my moment. Maybe at last I will be seen. Maybe at last I will be loved. At last someone will care for me. And maybe one day when they make a movie about my life, I will be played by Reese Witherspoon instead of Julia Roberts. The only problem, the only problem is that it never actually happens. We are told in the most painful verse in all of chapter 29, Jacob loved Rachel more than her. And you feel her heart break. But Leah doesn't quit. She doesn't stop there. Like Jacob, she is a grasper, and she is going to grasp at anything and everything she can to secure this love for herself. Look at what happens in the very next part of our story. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Don't you love that? When the Lord saw. Who saw Leah? Who was the first to see Leah? The Lord. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Then she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son this time, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Then she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. Do you see the pattern here? She's grasping and grasping and grasping. And I think these are some of the most honest verses in all the Bible. Leah is just bearing her soul here. She has her first son. She names him Reuben, which literally means to see, right? Maybe my husband will finally see me if I name my son to see. But of course, Reuben doesn't do the trick, so she has another baby. This one, Simeon, literally means to hear. Maybe now my husband will listen to me. And then she has a third child, Levi, whose name comes from the word lava, which means to attach. Even if he won't love me, she thinks, Maybe my husband will at least be bonded to me. I will at least feel something. You know, not too long ago, I had the privilege of sitting with someone 
who came to me and shared it with me and said, Aaron, I'm really struggling in my marriage right now. They said, don't, don't get me wrong. I do my best to love my family. Uh, we don't have any major issues that I can think of. The only problem is I'm just not happy. And then they said these words to me that have stuck with me ever since. They asked this question. They said, Aaron, isn't marriage supposed to make me happy? I've been pondering that question a lot this year. Because I know there are a lot of marriages, not just in our world or in our community, but even in our church, a lot of marriages that are struggling. Isn't marriage supposed to make me happy? And we find ourselves in a marriage where that just might not be the case. And we're tempted to think, oh, maybe I didn't get the right one. Maybe I need a different one, which is actually a number two, or maybe not number two, but number three. And we keep thinking, maybe the next thing I can grasp, maybe the next child, maybe the next... But is it really true that marriage is supposed to make us happy? Our movies, our songs, our culture, they certainly uh, kind of perpetuate this idea, don't they? I mean, we, we sing songs, uh, uh, you're the one that I want when I'm lying there in your arms. I find it hard to believe we're in what? Heaven, right? Ah, oh, this is just going to give it to me. This is finally, this is going to satisfy my soul. And then we get into it, we're like, wait a second. You see, the truth is, the things that we need most... Love, security, value, worth. These things are not things that any human being can give us. Can marriage be great? Yes. Yes. Can it be a blessing? Absolutely. Can it be the ultimate thing to give you that love? No. I wanted to remind you of something I've shared with you before. This comes from Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and physicist from the 17th century. He said it best. He said it's like this. We all have a kind of vacuum, a kind of void, a hole, that need that can only be met by God's love. His love is the only thing that can satisfy that deep ache and longing of the human heart. When two human beings try to find this in each other, it's like two vacuums sucking. They only make a louder sucking sound, right? <laughs> You get the picture? Well, let's get back to the story because there's one last thing that I think you'll find quite surprising. I just love the picture of God's quiet mercy here. The Bible says that God saw Leah. He saw that she was not loved. See, God knew that her romantic idol would never, never satisfy her deep longing, but he was patient with her. He allows her to discover that emptiness on her own, to reach the end of that so that she would be willing to lay it down. Notice what happens as she gives birth to her fourth child. Verse 35. She, that's Leah, conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, this time she says, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. Did you catch the change in direction? This time, she makes a conscious decision to set aside the idol. This time, I will not bow to romantic love. This time, I will put the love of God at the center. This time, I will praise God the Lord. 
Now, one little nerdy moment right here that I just can't pass up because I think this is so powerful. The word here for praise the Lord is the Hebrew word yada. A lot of Hebrew words are a lot of Hebrew words for praising and prayer. Many of them involve body movements. This one literally means to extend open hands. She says, this time I will the Lord. This time I will the Lord. Do you feel the power of that? So, Aaron, this Valentine's Day, I should have skipped church. Are you telling me that romantic love is a bad thing? Should I take that box of chocolates back to CVS and get a refund while I still have time? Is that what I should do today? No. Romantic love is a great thing. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. It just cannot be the ultimate thing. It never was meant to be. And this is part of what Jacob's story is trying to help us see. Namely, that in all of our longing, in all of our aching, in all of our searching, we are ultimately searching for Jesus. In fact, the way the Bible portrays it is that Jesus is the true bridegroom we all long for. In fact, the New Testament is going to pick up on this very theme of Jacob's well in the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter. As the New Testament tells it, Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he stops at the very same well that Jacob first met Rachel at. Did you know that? Jesus meets this woman who's been looking for love in all the wrong places, If you're familiar with this story, you know that she had had six relationships, which is exactly the same number of children that Leah would ultimately have. And just like Leah, she is still thirsting. She is still searching for something, a true love that will satisfy. Well, this woman and Jesus, they strike up a conversation, and Jesus says this funny phrase to her. He said, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. She responds, Who are you? (laughs) Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it? And then Jesus responds with these timeless words that are still ringing true today. Words that could have been spoken to Jacob, to Leah, to Rachel, to you or to me. And he says this. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, so, how about you? How about you, right? You know the problem with today's sermon? Let me just tell you what the problem with today's sermon is. You ready for this? There's no practical application today, right? There isn't. Well, there's one, one practical application. If you're one of those parents that's playing favorites, knock it off, okay? Just that's, that's not gonna go well for you. It's not gonna work for the golden child. It's not gonna work for the black sheep. You just need to learn to recognize the unique fingerprint of the image of God in each child and celebrate that, okay? So there's one practical application, but set that aside for a minute because today's message is what we in the preaching world like to call a come to Jesus kind of sermon, Right? The only real application is to stop and to examine my heart and to ask myself the question, what have I been 
grasping for? What have I been longing for? What's the deepest ache of my heart that if I could just have that, I think finally everything else would work out? Do you know what that is for you? Could you name it? See, the invitation from Jacob's story is not simply to name that, but to do what Leah did and extend our hands to God, offering that to him and say, Jesus, would you come again and be the center of my life, the center of my heart? Jesus, would you come and be the one true love that will satisfy my soul? So how about you? What ache or longing do you feel today in your heart? Can we pray? I'm going to give you just a minute in this space, in this quietness, to talk to God. That's all prayer is. Maybe you simply want to extend your hands and name that thing that you feel, that longing, that ache, and ask Jesus to take that, to hold it. And in an exchange, to come and fill you again with his grace and love for you. Jesus, we recognize that as the scriptures teach us, you alone can satisfy our thirst. All our grasping, all our striving will never give us what our hearts truly need. And so today, Lord, we come like Leah with our hands open to you. Would you forgive us for the idols that we place at the center? Would you help us to place them into your hands? And would you come again and be the king of our heart? Take up the place in our lives as our first love. We give ourselves to you. We entrust ourselves to you. Would you receive us again? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen.